Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome to a new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. I am Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brookes University, your host. And today I am with Professor Rodrigo Zaidan from New York University. I'm here with Rodrigo to speak about his new book, a textbook. This is Economics of Global Business, published by the MIT Press in 2018. A very original, great new book in economics. Rodrigo, welcome, and please tell us something more about yourself and your several affiliations. Thank you very much, Dr. Bernardi. It's an honor to be part of your podcast. Um, I'm, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm a teacher at uh, NYU Shanghai. I also teach at Fundação Dom Cabral, a business school uh, that deals mainly with executive education in Brazil. And in the summer, uh, I teach at uh, Copenhagen Business School, a couple of courses, um, undergrad and grad school for the, the summer program that they have over there, um, which is part of my identity, being a global citizen, uh, move, moving around the world, Every few months, uh, I feel that is the best way to experience uh, what is happening, not only from a personal point of view, but also what's happening with economic policy all over the world. Great. Let's start with the background of the book, of this book. So how you ended writing it. And maybe I, I could read the first line of your preface, where probably you say something about the beginning of your interest with economics and finance. And this is the page one of the book. When I was a kid in the 1980s in Brazil, I had a job to do every once every month. My task was to rush around our local supermarket and toss items on my mother's list into a cart, trying to keep one step ahead of employees armed with price guns who regularly marked up prices on the day my mom received a paycheck. So what is the story and what is the relationship between these and you being a professor of economics? Um, I'm, I'm sure that it played a role. Um, just to give you some background, uh, in the 80s in Brazil, when, when I relate that story, which is also part of, my, of an article that I wrote, a notepad that I wrote in the New York Times uh, about the traumas of hyperinflation. Uh, so this, this story happened under hyperinflation in Brazil. So uh, we would, um, we, my, my mom would get her paycheck and would have to spend everything immediately because money would lose 2-3% of its value maybe every week or sometimes every day. Uh, so people with price guns would be marking prices up every single day everywhere. So you try to beat them uh, so you could buy as much as possible. Uh, and that, of course, is, is ingrained in every Brazilian family from th- that grew up in that time. And I'm sure that it played a role. Uh, we even uh, talk in Brazil about uh, economics as flourishing in the early 1990s when people wanted to understand what was going on and, and how to get out of that uh, horrible state of affairs uh, and gladly 
since 1994, we've had we have had a stable economy, at least in terms of of keeping inflation under check and not going to hyperinflation uh, anymore. Very good, very good. So um, let's start. How let's say how you you write a textbook. Mm, this is one of the first times that I am reviewing a textbook, which is somehow different from um, a, a monographs. So, uh, what was what was your motivation to write it, and how you built it? So that is a that is a very good question, of course. And uh, the reason is because I never found a textbook that I felt comfortable with. I've been teaching macroeconomics since. I don't know, 2001. Uh, and I never had a textbook that I could say, oh, this textbook teaches economics uh, well to no economists. Uh, there are plenty of, of very good textbooks that teach economics for economists. I, I like Varian and many others, Mancules. Uh, but the problem is that I teach economics to no economists. And then I have a problem, which is how to explain economic concepts in a world that gets increasingly uh, um, correlated every day, like economic policies. You, you now have news from China, Japan, the US. How can I explain to somebody that's growing up in a multicultural world how economics work in a language that is accessible? That is my problem with many textbooks, textbooks that are written for economists. They're very technical and that is absolutely fine, but I made a choice to write something that is accessible, that everybody could can read, and that people can take it as a textbook, but could also write read as in a kind of popular ways, an, a popular version of science uh, that has to do with some of the best scientists of the world, like Richard Feynman, that try to say, okay, I'm I'm a top scientist, but I also want to to make people understand uh, science, even if the people are non specialists. And that is why I wrote this. I try to make it accessible. I try to make it interesting, fun. The book has very few equations. Uh, it deals mostly with graphs. Uh, and even the graphs people can ignore if they just want to hear stories. And finally, uh, most of the textbooks, they are very context-specific, context like they are geared towards the U.S. M most of the, 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 the best-selling textbooks deal mostly with U.S. policies because the U.S. is the biggest economies, uh, the big, the biggest economy in the world, but also because in the U.S. it's where most top economies come from or are working. Uh, and I wanted to make a, a book that is accessible to every student anywhere. So there are examples of more than 50 countries. Pretty much every region of the world discovered uh, examples of economic policies in Australia, China, Africa, Europe, Latin America, they maybe not Antarctica. Uh, maybe that is the next step, which is trying to understand economic policy in Antarctica. But other than that, uh, every region of the world is covered in the book, which is a, what I think is one of the strengths of the material, one of the main reasons that I chose to write it. Okay, so economics of global business. Does the global nature of business require revising some elements of economics? Yes, uh, for sure. The fact that the world is interconnected and you cannot understand economic policy just by thinking of what we economists call a country in outer key, right? A country that we only produce and consume locally. Uh, policies uh, have an impact in other countries. We can see that 
right now with the trade war, we can see uh, with the increasing interest rates by the Federal Reserve in the U.S. having an effect in countries in Latin America because last year, for the first time, you had uh, sustained uh, increases in the interest rate in the U.S. that made uh, exchange rates devalue all over the world, especially in emerging markets. You need that kind of framework to understand the contemporary world. You cannot just understand economic policy in a sense of, oh, here the government does A and has an impact in B. No, it may have an impact in country D on sector E. So that's what I try to tackle uh, in the book. Um, and that is why the book is called Economics of Global Business. And not, not only because that's the course that I teach at NYU, but also because of the global nature of the modern economy. Okay. In the book, there is also a substantial part which is devoted to finance and monetary issues. And I know that you have a very strong finance background. And I would like to ask if this has an impact on the way you see the relationship between the real economy and finance. That is, uh, that is a, uh, another very smart question. Uh, I don't think anybody can ignore the financial side of the economy today because not only of the of the great financial crisis of 2007 and 2008, but the fact that you know uh, people make savings, uh, making make saving decisions internationally. People have access to global financial markets and stuff like that. People can decide, oh, I'm going to put my money in, a, in country A so I can retire there or something like that. Um, so we cannot ignore that anymore. Many textbooks of the past uh, taught economics without integrating the financial system. They thought the financial system was a separate part of the economy or, or was a special part that could be treated in their own way. But we cannot do that anymore. The next crisis might, might be on the horizon. We need to understand the economic policy and the effects that they can have on financial markets and the feedbacks that financial markets can have on the global economy. And, and again, uh, it's, it's part of the reason that I integrated that is because I cannot write a modern textbook today without taking into account the financial system. It simply cannot be done from any point of view. Okay. Now, if I'm correct, you've been living in China most of your year for, more, for almost 10 years because you arrived in 2009 or 2010 in, uh, in China uh, working for the U.S. in Nottingham. Then you moved to NYU Shanghai. So it's almost 10 years. This experience in China, uh, did it play a role in the way you have written this book? It, it did, uh, for sure. Um, when we see a country in which in the early 1980s, 88% of the, of the population lived in extreme poverty, and now less than 2% do, when you see that level of development, when you go, like, like you said, when I arrived in China in 2010, uh, Ningbo, where I used to live, didn't have any subways. Now it has two lines. Shanghai had eight subway lines. Now it has 16 or something like that. The number goes every goes up every day. Uh, the level of development, the level, the increase in consumption, the increase in investments, the, the rising in importance of the Chinese economy in the global context means that, of course, I need to take that into account. It's part of my, uh, of my nature to try to understand, oh, that's, that's an interesting, to which extent... Can we generalize Chinese experience to other emerging markets? To, to which extent 
uh, are Chinese policymakers doing, making good economic policies? What can we learn from that? Uh, for sure, I could not have written this textbook if I, if I were still uh, a professor in Brazil teaching only Brazilian students in Portuguese. Uh, this global experience is part of most economists' uh, topic, of, no, most economists in the world today, uh, if, they, if they think that, that the economy can be analyzed just by staying in the same place for the rest of their lives, they, they are wrong. Okay, to go back to that first page of your preface where you say, I was experiencing first-hand many effects of inept economic policies, then in your book you have spent uh, uh, an entire chapter to policymaking, and there is an entire uh, emphasis on policymaking also on the other chapters. Mm, and since we're talking about China, I would like to ask you about uh, your view on the current trade war and and the, the the trade debate the trade policy debate between United States and China Europe and China and even Britain and the rest of the world Britain and Europe it's it's absolutely amazing right because because you assume that uh, po that policymakers are somewhat rational and they wouldn't um, shoot themselves in the foot and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, the trade is not a zero-sum game. It doesn't mean that, it, that if, I, if the U.S. wins, the China loses. No, what is happening is that the trade war, the trade war is making everybody worse. Uh, this is already happening. You can already uh, uh, see the effects on, on uh, American farmers that have been affected by Chinese tariffs, on uh, people in China who, whose livelihood have been, have been affected by the tariffs in the steel uh, industry, aluminum industry. So ah, it's, it's hard for me uh, as a rational person who understands the economic systems to see uh, policymakers say, doing really stupid kind of policies, really saying, no, we're going to drive our economy down just for the sake of some um, political gain By, so we can go to our base and say, see, we defeated China in a stupid trade war. That is so stupid in so many levels. That is unbelievable to anybody who understands a little bit of economics to see. And it's the same like in Venezuela today. Venezuela is going through a hyperinflation process. You can, you, we know how to get out of this. Like It's in a textbook. It's in my textbook. <laughs> Step by step, how you get out of hyperinflation. But it doesn't happen. The, the, the government in Venezuela is looking for control over the livelihoods of its citizens. It's, choo it's, it's choosing to keep, the, the Maduro government is choosing to keep uh, itself in power over the welfare of its citizens. So what can you do? That is, I do not have an answer for that. That answer doesn't come from economics. It comes from the political system, international relations, and other aspects of the world that unfortunately um, are not in the book. They cannot be in the book, right? The book is not about everything. But um, yeah.
But your book is also still about many things. For example, there is an entire chapter devoted to income inequality. And I would like to ask you, what is your view about current global trends on inequality? I give you uh, an anecdote. Last month in Oxford, there was a professor from Singapore. He arrived and he started his uh, speech saying, look, I, when I arrive in Europe, in the West, uh, there is this gloomy attitude, this gloomy, sad atmosphere. Everybody's complaining, everybody's sad, everybody's concerned. But look, this is happening on in here. If you go to Asia, if you even go to Latin America, people are aware that we are living in probably the, the, the best, the safest, the healthiest uh, moment in the history of humankind. And he used some uh, figures. For example, he said, uh, look, if you look at the um, share of world population, which is in absolute poverty, when I was born, he said in 1950, this was 75% of world population. In the 80s, this was uh, down to 40. And only today, for the first time, it is only 10%. So 10% of world population below the absolute poverty threshold. And he said, we should be so happy of this uh, amazing achievement. Instead, we are super uh, concerned and we, we describe our uh, current reality as the, the worst possible. And we are nostalgic about the past. So what is your view about um, inequality and other um, major problems facing, facing, uh, that the humanity is facing? Well, your colleague from Singapore is definitely right uh, in one sense. Global inequality, if you think about every citizen in the world, is going down. So if you think about, if you believe that all citizens of the world are equal, that the lives, the lives of a Singaporean, the lives of uh, Chinese and Taiwanese and, and Thai, Thai people are exactly the same as the life of an European or an African, then... We, are, we should be optimists. The world is getting better if we consider the world population. But unfortunately, that's not how people think. If I'm Italian, I will think that I care about more about Italians. If I'm German, I care more about Germans. And, and if that is the, the view of the world, and that is the view, of course, that, is, that most of the countries have. Like inside it, Italy, most people are going to focus on Italian problems, not on global problems then we also have a case for saying, look, inequality is getting worse. Uh, inequality is a big issue in many places in the world. Interestingly enough, I don't think inequality is a big, is a big problem in Europe. I don't think Italy has an inequality problem. Italy has a productivity problem. Germany doesn't have an inequality problem. Uh, maybe the UK has a little bit of inequality problem. But inequality... However, in the U.S., inequality is a big issue. Latin America is definitely a big issue. Uh, China is increasingly a big issue. And that's the way that I try to treat inequality uh, in the book. First of all, which kind of inequality matters? A lot of people talk about wealth inequality. The people talk, oh, how a person like Bill Gates can have $100 billion. That is unfair. No, like economists don't care about wealth inequality. Uh, we care about income inequality because that's what affects people. Uh, that's what affects people in a day-to-day -day, uh, basis, which is the fact that if I'm making a hundred a hundred dollars a month, then I'm really worse off. If I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a month, then I'm really good. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm really well, wonderful position. Uh, so, income inequality is what matters uh, for most people in the world or for economic policy, not wealth inequality. Um, and in Europe, 
And I have this as a case study in the in the book as well, which is income inequality in the in the US and Europe. And this is an interesting data for your listeners. Uh, if you think about pre-market, pre-transfer, what do I mean? By just market, just just wages, uh, plus income from capital, income from investments and stuff like that, inequality in the US and Europe is exactly the same. Inequality in Europe and the US change when you take into account post-transfer income inequality, which is after the government says, okay, I'm going to redistribute income to poor citizens in Europe. European governments are much better at this. And that is where most of the inequality uh, problem comes about, is because the U.S. government is really bad at, uh, at doing some sort of income transfer that is moves the lives of the poorest citizens. So people can be, uh, it almost doesn't exist in Europe, the kind of working poor. Uh, which I treat in the book as well. Uh, in Europe, people are either unemployed and can be poor if unemployed, but if people have a, a job, they will make enough to mostly make a, a decent living. In the US, people can have three jobs and still receive welfare, still receive all sorts of assistance that are not gonna be that the assistance is not gonna be enough. So people might end up uh, having three jobs and still being very, very much poor in bad neighborhoods with violence and crime. And that is the kind of, of, of view that I try to put, which kind of in, in inequality matters, where does it does uh, government policy, when when is government policy warrants, uh, when is government, what, in which situations is government policy doing well, which, in which countries is not doing well, uh, what about China? Is is inequality in China a big concern or not? Um, and that is that is the kind of 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 way that I approach this in the book. Uh, we need to be a little bit careful about precisely defining inequality before we can make statements about it. Okay, uh, let me move to one of your last chapters. But I forgot to say that uh, uh, the book has got. Uh, 15 chapters and it is divided into two parts. The first one is titled The Management of National Economies and then we have part two, Economic Policy in a Global Context. If we move to the end of the book, you cover very interesting topics such as climate change, austerity and sustainability. Uh, can you tell us about the role of those three teams in your book and in general in the job of an economist? Um it's 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 a very important question because for from the best of my knowledge, uh, this is the first textbook to deal with climate change and to integrate it well into macroeconomic modeling. Not that it hasn't been done in economics before. Of course, it has. Like Nordhaus, uh, who has been done doing climate modeling and microeconomics, just won the Nobel Prize um, with um, Paul Romer, uh, but. It didn't, uh, this kind of climate change modeling and macroeconomics haven't reached uh, textbooks before. And that's what I try to do. Uh, the case of austerity is also an interesting one because people talk about austerity in moral terms. Oh, we need, we need austerity because we need to stop profligacy. We need to be better city, be better governments. 
And what I show in the book is that any kind of policy of that kind is really context dependent. Uh, There are situations in which austerity should be used and there are situations in which austerity should not be used. Uh, For instance, there is no way that the Greek economy after the crisis could go on just by the government continuing to spending like crazy. But at the same time, there is a big case for like countries like the UK to have done austerity in a way that was not necessarily very good. That is said, oh, instead of, of trying to make the economy revive a little bit, the government went into all these sorts of cost-cutting modes that serve no ulterior purpose. And again, this idea of context dependency, it's really important in the book. Trying to find solutions that are politically and economically feasible are also part of the book. It's the same, for instance, coming back to climate change, that if you are going to do, and as I think we should do, policies to address environmental issues, uh, which policies are best, right? I don't subscribe to all these ideas of degrowth and all of these ideas that the economic, the capitalist system must be retooled and stuff like that. Just because, first of all, people cannot precisely define what they mean by capitalist system. And second, we cannot tell poor people that the, the global economy is not going to grow anymore. It just doesn't happen. Why are you going to say to people in India or China, oh, we're not going to have economic growth? You're going to have to live with the same living standards? Or for you to grow, we're going to make people in Denmark poorer? It's not going to happen. So the kind of policies that we have to make to address contemporary issues is at the core of the book. And again, all prescriptions are context-dependent. Austerity would be good in certain contexts. Austerity would be bad in a lot of contexts. And that's what I try to address and what I think is, is, is important. Because if you look at some of the textbooks, they're going to say, oh, government spending is always bad. Government shouldn't spend a lot of money which makes no sense for an economist, really. Uh, while other textbooks are going to say, oh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes was right, and the government should drive the economy. No, the government can drive the economy under certain contexts. The government should be uh, uh, should rein back spending in other contexts. Nothing shows that better than the Trump tax cuts, which is really something that most economists would like to see, tax cuts, but not in the context of Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump did the tax cuts in the worst possible time when the economy was booming. The ta- a tax cut is much better when the economy is not doing well to try to revive the economy. Doing a tax cut in a booming economy makes no sense. And that, again, is the kind of advice, the, the kind of the mechanisms that I try to showcase in the book that... Certain policies are good at certain times. Certain policies are not that good at other times. And contact dependency is at the core of these contemporary issues like climate change, austerity, income inequality, uh, so on and so forth. But in this final chapter, there is also another important topic that you not often find in textbooks of economics, and this is demographics and migration. So... What is your point on migration? And this is a, a big issue uh, because it is uh, uh, 
driving uh, populism, both in, in Europe and in North America. So what is your view as an economist on migration? And maybe, uh, I, I, I think I remember an article of you of yours uh, for a newspaper. Uh, it was a very brave uh, proposal on, on migration. So I'm I'm gonna answer as true. I'm gonna I'm gonna divide myself into different people. First, the ideologue, uh, the person who thinks that every global every person in this in this world is exactly the same. I don't think an Italian is more important than somebody from Congo. I don't think a Chinese person is more important than an American or a Brazilian is more important than a Danish person or vice versa. In that sense, I'm all for open borders. If people from Africa can go to want to go to Europe, why not? Oh, but this maybe will bring down some uh, some uh, income from some people in Europe. So what? People are rich. Or the other people are really poor. In the end, one is going to be a little bit less rich. The other is going to jump through different stages of wealth. It's going to be much richer. That's what we need. The world needs this kind of dynamism. As an economist... Uh, of course, is a little bit context-dependent, but mostly research has shown that migration is really good for the recipient countries um, for many reasons. But just to give you one, migrants are usually risk-takers, and when there is this self-selection, that you end up with really a bunch of risk-taking people in your country. They open more business, they drive the economy, they make the economy more dynamic. So... I think it's really uh, migration. For instance, I remember 2007 before the financial crisis, Spain was going to Latin America, uh, advertising Spain as come live in Spain. We need migrants. We need labor force. Spain is, is, is an old uh, country already with median age of over 40 years and people are not having kids. So they need migrants. The financial crisis hit and now there are, anti-migrants. No, we don't want you to come anymore. So it's it's really a little bit disingenuous, which is, oh, we want migration when we need them. We don't want migration when we don't need them. Here's the thing. Again, it comes from this view that an European is inherently more important than a person from Africa that wants to migrate or a person from Latin America or a person from Asia, a view that I do not subscribe. Uh, of course, in a, it's a textbook, so I cannot say Let's have open borders. But I clearly try to delineate under which conditions migration is good, under which conditions migration is bad. And I can assure you that migration is not only uh, uh, sufficient, but a necessary condition for Europe to prosper in the long run. You're not going to have a rich Europe in the long run without migration because there will be nobody to work. Europe is getting older and it's today, the only thing that is making uh, the labor markets a little bit more dynamic in Europe is trying to attract very good people like you going to, to the UK. Just imagine what the EU did for the dynamism of labor markets. People can try to go anywhere where there are good jobs, which makes people in Germany look at the German economy. A lot of it uh, is migrants working, and not only migrants from Africa, but migrants from other countries in Europe that go because the economy is, is more dynamic. So uh, I try to tackle that in the book. The article that you refer to, it's one of the most important things that I've written. It was written for Bloomberg uh, with a colleague, um, Irineo Carvalho, um, who is 
this from the IMF, although he cannot sign it as somebody from the IMF, um, of course, because it was his personal opinion. And we tried to solve the European refugee crisis by using Brazil as a mediator. Uh, Europe spent, Europe paid Turkey 7 billion euros or more uh, to keep people mostly from Syria, but also Yemen, uh, from moving to Europe, for, to act as a blocking country. Uh, my argument is that if instead of just doing that, Europe tried to, for everybody who wanted to go to Brazil, if Europe wanted to help people resettle in Brazil, everybody would benefit. European countries, because they would be doing what they want, which is getting less migrants. People from Syria who was just trying to flee for, them li- for their lives. And also Brazil, who is going to get a lot of of, of People who are uh, well-educated, speak two, three languages, are risk-takers, want to make a good life. And Brazil was always an immigrant country. Uh, It received huge amounts of people from Europe in the the, uh, late 19th century. And we are good at welcoming immigrants. So I tried to make that so Brazil would receive a million immigrants. uh, That, of course, voluntarily, no forced relocation. Uh, that wanted to go, but unfortunately, at the time, Brazil was going through the impeachment of the president, and nothing came out of it. But I still believe that this could uh, be done under the certain uh, conditions, not with the recent Brazilian government, because it's a mess. It's a semi-fascist government, populist. Uh, nothing like that would ever happen. Uh, but under the right circumstances, I still believe that helping people relocate it's still the best uh, path moving forward for everybody involved. Thank you very much, Rodrigo, because with your uh, comments on the issue of migration, you have explained uh, how this book is different from other textbooks of economics. It is different because of your passion, your focus on contemporary topics, and your emphasis on policy making. So the textbook does sound uh, different and more uh, passionate and more real world focused than many other textbooks of economics. So congratulations. Uh, I, I might uh, I end one One final comment, which is one difference of this textbook is the textbook doesn't focus on what the right economic policy should be. A lot of economic textbooks try to define the optimal tax policy, the optimal migration policy. I don't focus on that because politicians don't go for optimal policies. Politicians go for what is feasible and what's going to get them reelected. So I try to focus on what economic policy actually is, what are the choices that uh, uh, politicians actually have and how they actually operate instead of going for this ideal world of what we economists call first best policies. The world is never going to follow first best policies. They are never going to have, for instance, an open border world. So I try to make the, the, the book grounded in reality. These are the choices that actually are the real choices of politicians, not necessarily what's the optimal response that a model said that the politicians should have but it's completely unfeasible politically. And this is very important and, and very original. Thank you. Um, so maybe I might conclude our conversation asking you about your current projects and your future books, maybe. 
thank you. Um, so right now I'm actually writing another textbook on development economics uh, because, again, I find that there is something that I want to say in the case of development economics, which is really uh, most textbooks focus on how we as, as, as enlightened people can help the poorest countries of the world leave poverty. And, and I don't like that approach. So my development economic textbook is going to be about developments in all countries. So the same policy that works that should work in Africa should also work in Europe. When we're talking about education policy, should uh, university be free, for instance, which is a very important development question. Uh, again, I answer which under which context university should be free, under which context university should not be free. What are the choices? What are the constraints? Uh, and the lesson should be uh, important for every country, not only for the poorest of the poor, which is usually the focus of development economics. So this is one. I'm also working a lot in sustainable economics and finance, uh, which is something that I, I really think I can contribute. Uh, I had a paper last year published in Nature, uh, Nature Sustainability about um, uh, trade and, and lowering tariffs and the, the, the possible impact that that could have on uh, climate change mitigation. And so I'm working a lot of that on that, so I'm trying to find uh, what, what I call low-hanging low hanging fruit uh, policies that are politically feasible and that could bring the world to a better environmental and economic out, uh, outcome uh, the, the kind of policies that are what I call win-win policies, that people are richer and the environment gets better. And for instance, inequality gets lower. There are policies that are, that are like that, uh, but we discuss very little about it, um, which is so this is part of my research agenda today. Thank you very much. This was a fascinating conversation, Rodrigo. Thank you very much. We spoke about uh, a great new book in economics, and this is uh, Economics of Global Business, published by the MIT Press in 2018 by Professor Rodrigo Zaidan. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, Dr. Bernardi. It was an honor, and uh, thank you very much for uh, anybody who is listening to this podcast. Um, again, it was an honor. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy.